Hi guys, Paul from the innovation community here. Today I'm with Quiva Balali Gilroy, who is the head of digital health and therapeutics at Merck Group in Germany. A leader in the medical space for most of her career, Quiva heads up data strategy and digital health with the healthcare business of Merck. Great to have you with us. Hi Paul, nice to have you. Oh, nice to be here. Thank you. Uh, just to start with, tell us a bit about yourself in a few words. Cool. So, um, so I'm Irish um, and I have uh, had the pleasure of, of living in several different countries as I've, I've moved around with my career. Um, but essentially what I am is that from a professional perspective, um, I'm, a gen I'm a geneticist and translational scientist by training. Um, I am a pure hardcore science nerd. Um, I love what I do and that I, I'm, I'm the one question that has fascinated me throughout my entire career is essentially you know what what can we do and how can I use my experience my knowledge and, and my passion to make life better for people make life better for patients and and ultimately how do we reduce the number of patients we have in the world by making a, a better and a healthier population um, so yeah, so that's that's where I am at the moment. I, I live in Germany. I live in Darmstadt, just south of Frankfurt, um, and I've been here for about four years now. So where did your career working in data start, in your opinion? <laughs> so in my opinion, the one thing that I say an awful lot is that absolutely everybody is a data producer and a data consumer. So from my perspective, my career in data started in, uh, during my undergraduate degree. Um, I may not necessarily have a tangibly um, kind of expressed that fact, but when you know you do an undergraduate degree in genetics and, and you generate huge volumes of, of sequencing data and things like that, 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 that is data, that is where we start. And it's more about um, everything we do comes from data and it's now I've, I've pretty much gone from being at the in the data producing side of the organization to understanding the, the data consumption side of things and how to flip it from operations into the strategy and vision and, and really execution of, of high quality um, solutions using the data. So you've just started a new role this year. What are you up to yeah. in that role? Ah, so I'm, I'm super excited by this role, I have to be honest. So what it allows me to do, so my previous role was um, of head of data analytics and strategy for healthcare. And that was essentially, that was my first role outside of, of clinical development. And I moved from the, the clinical trial space into really all of the data that the company has and, and trying to implement a, a data governance framework and strategy and vision for how we utilize data and get the full maximal value out of the data that we generate. Um, and I have a, a, a new boss that came in, so we have a, a new head of um, digital and data for healthcare is a, a, a very clever guy called Michel, Michelangelo Canzonieri. Um, and we had a chat and he said, yes, what you do with that job is super relevant and desperately needed, but is it something that you love? And I said, no, I see the value of it, but it's not where my passion lies. And my passion lies much more on the, the patient end of the spectrum. So he said, okay, well, you know, let's talk about how we 
how we really match your passion. And so I, I took on digital health and therapeutics. So it's a, a new centralized role. We have some small areas within the company that have been doing some of that stuff before. And, and we've started up this central function to kind of tie it all together and have a, a longer, a wider strategic view on, on how we really generate value for patients out of that. Um, and so my job there is to to really develop the strategy for that and to develop the strategy of how we expand our business into the digital health and digital therapeutic space um bring in a governance structure an operational framework um, really maximize the value and this is where i get really excited about it because for me it's it's a lovely mix between maximizing the value of our molecular portfolio and developing non-molecular treatments for patients and even into the the, the super blue sky area thinking of the preventative health space um, where we essentially try and prevent people becoming patients and that's that is my job now it only started in january so there's an awful lot of work ongoing and there are a huge number of discussions um, strategically where does the company want to go and and um you know what can we generate and and but that's that's all the fun at the moment Awesome stuff. So you mentioned that you're, you're really on the, the helping side of things. How yeah. can we use data to shift from a, a curative to a, a preventative operating model for, for medicine? Okay. So, I mean, uh, do you know, the interesting thing about that is that there's so, so much um, that can be done. And, and that's, that's probably the, the challenge for me is to start um, defining out where and when. So, you know, I, I mentioned at the start that my background is in genetics. Um, for me, I believe, genuinely believe that the solution to all of our uh, challenges with regards to um, preventative health versus curative health is it really based in, in an individual's genome. Um, and it is that information, that data, that personal data from that patient and that person that will allow us to build out um, a, a better overview on on what they how they may react in different situations and what i i feel really passionate about is that i believe that the tying together of um genetic data biomarker data and um, behavioral data and and baseline um, data. So, you know, for example, I, I, I'm a fanatic wearables user, so I, I wear several wearables at the time. That data that is collected about me and that allows us to build, essentially allows me to build what I refer to as kind of a, a data health, a data baseline um, of health. So I know um, how, how I'm behaving, how my, my body's reacting to certain things because I know what my data baseline is. If I was able to build on top of that and know what my um, genomic information is, what regular biomarker testing is to be able to understand how that changes potentially and um, whether it's because I am getting fitter and healthier and what behavioral modifications I have done there to, to support that or whether it is something like, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually not becoming healthier, I'm, I'm, I'm edging towards becoming ill, and it's being able to catch that point by able to know 
all of the data about a person or allow that person to have that understanding of their own data. And, you know, it's really something I think quite strongly about is that we have, we are allowed people to have autonomous ownership of their own health data to make the best choices about their health that are going to suit their lifestyle best. So, you know, I, I, I talked about all the wearables and I use them a lot because I play a lot of sport. I play a lot of sport and I want to be able to perform um, as high uh, a level as I possibly can. Now, not everybody in the whole wide world is going to monitor their sleeping patterns and their resting heart rate in the same way that I do um, and match it to my training programs, for example, you know, which days have I have I done and have I not slept well enough and I shouldn't do a heavy weight session or which I should do a cardio session. Not everybody's going to be able to or want to do that. But that's because I'm in the fortunate position that I have the autonomy uh, over my own data to be able to do that. And I think to really shift from being curative where it's a reactionary um, essentially approach to things to being preventative is that we actually have to be able to develop and give people the ability to have that information and use it in whatever way is going to give them the best lifestyle that they want. Fantastic stuff. And, and just staying on that, that kind of train of thought, yeah. um, you mentioned when we spoke before about implantable biosensors and, and the move towards more data-driven healthcare. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I talked about as part of the, the previous monologue um, about that, that better and that faster access to biomarker and more regular access to biomarker panel data. Um, for me, the kind of the dream scenario is to be able to have something that allows um, a patient that is a, 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 or a person actually really, um, that is a, oh, there are a couple of things that I want to talk about on this one. Um, so essentially, you know, whether we have something like an implantable biosensor that communicates with an app on the patient's phone that allows the patient or the, the person to understand particular um, parameters, biological parameters in their body and allows them to react. So for example, if they are under stress and there is a spike in the stress hormones, then obviously sometimes you don't even know you're under stress, but it, or if you have a you know, if you're you're running low, you have a low vitamin D level, you know, these are the things, all of these things allow people to be able to correct. And if they are able to do that automatically, because it's a, it's a live upload from a, a, a sensor that is implanted within the person, then that's, that I think is something that again, builds into that whole overarching holistic view of a human um, to, to allow for, for real time, um, monitoring of health and that's the important thing it's real-time monitoring of health it's not necessarily monitoring of disease but um, how do we keep the health levels uh, where the patient wants it to be brilliant really exciting stuff and just focusing on your own career now what would you describe mm -hmm. as some of the major successes you've achieved over that time um, so first of all the one thing that I have to say is I don't I don't think it's just me um, I'm very fortunate to work in teams with incredible talent um, and I find I, I feel very fortunate to be able to lead those teams to help guide them um, and for me I think where my biggest successes come through is whenever there is an overall team success 
Um, I, or at least those are the ones that bring me the most pleasure. And, you know, I have a fantastic and diverse team um, and we work very closely together. Um, I'm very, very transparent. So what I know generally my teams know, at least within reason. And, um, and I really like to encourage um, very open discussions. I think one of the things that I find most successful is if I have a team particularly with a huge amount of differing opinions and they are all comfortable enough to voice those opinions. Um, and I, I really enjoy some very, very spirited discussions, I think. But from a, from a technical perspective, one of the, the biggest successes that I've, I've had previously um, in my last role, um, my, I started my last role just about, about four months before um, the COVID um, outbreak really hit. So we were able, I had, I worked with a very small team um, and we were able to pivot what we were trying to do to being able to build a, an entire COVID-19 portal for our company in, in about two months, um, which allowed the company to, anybody in the company to be able to see what was happening at a country level, what the infection rates were, what the current research was, what the business recovery strategies were globally, um, both external and internal views. So that's you know something that we worked incredibly hard at. And, and even now, I still use it. I'm, I'm doing a, an article with the World Economic Forum on um, genomics in the clinic. And, and one of the things we're looking at is um, you know, whether genomics plays a, a part in, in the COVID reactions and responses of, of patients. And, and I was able to go in and one-stop shop, type in exactly what I wanted and get it all. So I even am benefiting now and um, post that. So that was a real success. But I think for me, honestly, I, I, I really believe that some of my best successes are hopefully to come and that will have a lot more impact on, on patients. Um, and, and a lot more preventative impact as well. I've been very fortunate to work in some incredible teams on drug development and, and brought some really fantastic molecules to the market. And I'm, I'm extremely proud of the success of the, the, the impact I've played in those successes, but I really look forward to what's to come. And that's really interesting about COVID and how you guys responded to that. How would you say that it's affected both your own role and, and the wider organization as well? Um, you know, I, I don't want to sound a little bit mercenary about it, but essentially we've definitely benefited from COVID in a, in a horrible way. And I, I, do, I do put that forward. We've benefited because, I mean, you have to look at it. The development of a vaccine in less than a year is incredible. That is incredible. We've never had that level of, of ability to do that in the past, or at least we probably have had the ability, but we haven't had the impetus and the need to do it. So for me, that is incredibly motivating. And what it shows us is the, the sheer realms of possibility. We can develop drugs to get them to patients as fast as humanly possible. And what, interestingly enough, I think is, in, is, is really useful that we've learned from that is that will allow us to do and, and get over regulatory hurdles for developing very personalized treatments for patients. We, you know, if we're able to develop a vaccine in a year for to treat millions of patients, 
you know, we should be able to develop individual personalized treatments for patients very quickly as well. So from, from that point of view, you know, COVID has, has been incredible for really driving the healthcare industry forward um, and allowing us to, to look at the possibilities. I think we're all quite aware that the healthcare industry is, is a pretty conservative industry with, with you know, all, um, you know, with all it, it requires and it needs. And that's, that's, that's very fair. But I think to show that we have the ability to bring much needed medication to patients that quickly is a real benefit of COVID. And on top of that, it really has kind of kickstarted the and not even kickstarted, but but maintained and, and showcased the value of, of digital and data within the healthcare organization and on how much can really be done um, from, from that perspective. And, and COVID has generated a huge volume of data. Like it's it's a massive volume of data. Um, and now the big challenge is how do we use it all? And how do we use it all to get the maximum information that we can out of it? Fantastic stuff. And I just want to touch back to something you said earlier about, uh, you know, working mm-hmm. with the team and, and, and about how proud you are of that. How would you describe your own leadership style? Um, I think, I think very transparent. Um, I know there are a huge number of, of different formats of, of leadership, but for me, I build quite close relationships with my team. Um, I think it's very important for two reasons. One, I like to work with people that I value. I like to work with people that challenge me. Um, I like the phrase, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Um, so I think it's, it's really important for me to have people who are smarter and better than me in the room because you, you don't hire people of, with, with huge amount of experience and then tell them how to do their job. So I, I don't micromanage. It's, it's not really in me because I hate to be micromanaged myself. Um, you know, so I, I feel very passionately that, that people come in, that they, they do something that they love um, and that they work in that respect. So, you know, from that, that end of things, I, that's why, um, that's why I, I run my teams. Um, the other thing is I, I come to work because I love coming to work um, and I love what I do. So I like, I like to, keep that um, motivation within my team as well. And I tend to play devil's advocate quite a lot because I like that things that are going out are of the highest standards that we have. So I encourage my teams to pressure test everything, including pressure testing me as well, because a lot of the time my job is not necessarily to do the work, but it is to present the work and to present the vision and the strategy. And therefore I like it to be picked apart and um, before I present it in front of very senior stakeholders, because that's, um, I think that's very important. So I encourage that within the teams. Um, I encourage that everybody in the teams have a voice. Fantastic. So uh, where do you think that, and you mentioned wearables, and I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts mm-hmm. on, on where you think that you can, where this technology will go over the next few years from a perspective of, of helping people get control of their own genome data. Um, I'm not entirely sure that a wearables will will um, benefit genomic data. To be honest, I think the wearables the wearables are really good for collecting um, biometric data. So, for example, you know you have the ability to run um, ECGs. You have the 
um, blood oxygen levels, you yeah. know, heart rate levels. I think that that is where wearables really have hit a, a really good sweet spot. And I think it's all about now um, expanding what other measurements that they can do. I mean, some of them are, are very good with regards to measuring respira um, respirations and things like that. In fact, some of the wearables have, have been used in potentially predicting um, COVID in patients because they're able to to predict or sorry they're able to understand the um the change in in respiration respiration rates of patients so you know that i think is is great i'm not entirely sure that they will be able to have any impact on genomic data yeah. but i think building connecting that those biometric data to the genomic data yeah. understanding the genomic data for me is is pretty much going to be on predictive it's it's going to be on what you're at risk of and um, what you potentially how you will potentially react in certain situations with certain um, conditions or with certain medications and allow you to avoid that um, so I think wearables play a very a very important part of, of of connecting a lot of the data together and and generating a lot of the data but I don't think they will will affect genomic data excellent and from a data perspective, where do you see the biggest opportunity for improvement within your organization at the moment? Um, so the biggest opportunity for data is that it's the not sexy end of it. I'm going to be very mm. frank with you. It's the quality of the data. It is the um, governance of the data. It is the access to data. There is a huge amount of data available, um, and I don't necessarily think we as an industry or, or even as a company, we really know how to get the full value out of the data. For me, to the, the, the potential of our data is bottomless. Like There's huge, huge potential in the data. Where I have a personal interest or where I would have a personal bias towards what we can bring out of the value of the data is very much around um, how do we run patientless clinical trials? How do we do in silico trial design and silico target identification? Um, you know, do we use AI to, to develop molecules, things like that? That is where, for me, there is a huge value in it. And that is purely out of... Um, again back to my underlying purpose of how do we get drugs to patients as fast as possible with as little burden to patients as possible and i think that is is where we stand to make massive massive strides in using our data great stuff so last couple of questions then what's your top working from home tip my top working from home tip um <laughs> uh turn on your camera uh, I've, I like I, I usually you know before before COVID hit and before there was that serious amount of working from home, I would have avoided turning my camera on like the plague. Like I just I had no interest in having my camera on. But I um I have had so many cool and interesting conversations with colleagues all over the world um about things like oh you know what do you have behind you or oh. Oh, your daughter's incredibly cute or oh i love your cat you know that 
But to me, that has really humanized a huge amount of people. And, and it has allowed that personal connection to try and persist. So I would always say, just turn your camera on. I find it really difficult. Now, it's the first thing I automatically, my camera is on in every call. And when people don't turn it on, I'm like, cool. You can see me, but I can't see you. And that's a bit weird. Um, so yeah, just turn your Amazing. camera on. <laughs> do you have like a, a routine? You mentioned you're, you're quite heavy on the sports side. Do you work out every day? Yes. So I, I, this is my, my office and I have behind me what I refer to as my, um, uh, I refer to it as the mullet room because it's business in the front and party in the back. So generally I get up in the morning um, at about 6.30 and um, I stumble around for about five minutes because I haven't quite woken up yet. And then I probably do um, about an hour to an hour and a half of, of weightlifting or a cardio session or because the weather's getting better and I'm very lucky to live beside a forest, um, I'll head out on my bike for um, about 20 kilometers in the morning um, before before I'm uh, ready for work and, and I generally just uh, feel huge amount better for that and then I start work by about I honestly I've been kind of pushing it back a little bit because I, I work quite late so I've I've taken taken the very clear decision of trying to have a little bit more personal time um, so I'll maybe start work by about 9 30 in the morning at that stage and I'll generally work right through to about 8 39 10 o'clock at night depending on on meetings and whether i've got completely stuck into something but um yeah my i i have an admin who i think i drive completely insane because she has uh, spends most of her time putting blocks into my calendar and then finding out that they've gone because i put somebody else in or a meeting in somewhere so we have very serious conversations sometimes where she tells me off and stops tell me to stop putting things into my calendar but yeah that's that's pretty much my routine as i try and do some sport in the morning and then occasionally if i finish early i might even do a second session in the afternoon because let's be very honest here there's nothing else to do yeah absolutely <laughs> what do you think was the the biggest mistake you made during your career and oh the biggest mistake the biggest mistake i made um that's an interesting one. The biggest mistake I've probably ever made is to make myself smaller, uh, is to potentially um, kind of conform. No, I'm not, I'm not, you look at me now and you'd say, I wouldn't necessarily say you conform an awful lot. Um, and that's true. But I, you know, I grew up in a, in a very loud, outspoken Irish family um, and I but and I was always used to having a voice um, and then when I started working in industry I just that just rolled on over I was going to you know I, I had an opinion therefore if somebody asked me for it I was going to give it to them um, in, in the best way possible but I know that that is potentially a little bit intimidating to some and you know at some point along very early early to mid part of my career in industry, I kind of started to, to adjust how I presented myself and censored my words a little bit to make myself a little bit less um, assertive or less palatable or, or to make myself more palatable and, 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 and less um, outspoken. And, uh, you know, I started to make sure that everybody else in the room was very comfortable and that, uh, you know, I, I could deal with just sitting back and that was not a problem. Um, 
but that wasn't me uh, and I felt very unhappy with it and um, you know for me then I just thought you know what I have value in what I say I have value in my thoughts I have value in in what I bring to the table I should be bringing that uh, and where I bring my most value is being as authentic and as honestly myself as possible and and that I think was probably the biggest change that I did so my mistake was trying to conform and then I rectified it by just going probably the opposite direction and, and being very much myself what's the best piece of advice you ever received <laughs> the best piece of advice I ever received was everybody learns at their own pace Remember, just because you have understood something doesn't necessarily mean that somebody else has. And so I think that's something that I have to, to temper occasionally a frustration because I forget that I, if I've had something, if I've had an idea in my head and I've chewed it over in my head and I'm super excited about it and I'm super passionate about it and I rattle it all off. Uh, and then I see blank faces. I'm like, oh, okay, yes, remember, you remember that's been in your head for a while. You have to explain it better. So I think for me is that remembering that everybody learns at their own pace is, is a good one. What are you curious about right now? Everything. I think that's the fun thing. Uh, I'm never, there's, there's, it's very rare that I'm not interested or curious about something. Um, I think for me, the, the thing that I am most curious about is, is the, the digital health and digital therapeutic stuff that I spoke to you about um, earlier on. And that's really about how do I, with the knowledge that I have and the teams that I work with, how do we put that into a reality for people? Great stuff. Do you, are, you, are you a big reader or in other words, who's your favorite thought leader or author? in the data space even if it's like your new boss or something like that um well i, I don't i don't read very much that michael and apart from emails that he sends me there's not an awful lot i, I read from him um it's a huge number of conversations um but yes i read a lot um i, I read an awful lot um I have found, I'll be very honest, I have found that my concentration levels have suffered since the start of COVID from being so connected to um, so, you know, digital um, equipment and laptops and phones and iPads and stuff because I'm so connected to that since the start. I find that I've, I've dropped my, um, uh, my concentration level. So I haven't read as much as I should have done. I have a huge shelf full of um, books that I'm, I'm waiting to read um but yeah so i think uh what i who i really like in the digital space is a guy called eric topple and um, so he writes an awful lot about digital health and, and digital therapeutics and final question what advice would you give for aspiring leaders in data um i think the advice that i would give is that data is only as good as the people who are using it um, treat treat people that are, are, are using the data well and um, success comes from people who are passionate engaged and motivated and and that's what their focus should be on um, really kind of put 
put people into areas that they are going to thrive in and that they are going to to generate the best value out of um and that that's really about it um i think a lot of things comes down comes down to people uh and if you have the right people around you who have the same beliefs and the same purpose driving them as you do um then you, you know you're you're going to be successful Great conclusion from Quiva Valerie Gilroy, Head of Digital Health and Therapeutics at Merck Group. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Paul.